Let's ask for help. God, uh, this is all about you. This morning is all about you. Our worship is all about you. Our time in the scriptures is all about you. Lord, it's not primarily about us. It's about you and what you've done. It's about you and your great love for us in coming for us even while we were your enemies. Help us to wrap our minds around this, Lord. We know that if we're going to understand the gospel, if we're going to believe these things, if we're going to come to see that they're true, that's not something we can do on our own because of sin. That's something that we need your spirit for. And so, Spirit of God, point us to the cross. Help us see the saving reality of Jesus. Help us understand how that shapes the way we live. Help us understand how that sends us on mission. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's been wonderful to be with you for the past three weeks. Next week, uh, Pastor Greg will be back. And I just want to thank him again for the chance to be here with you, opening the scriptures with you. It really is a gift uh, to me personally. And I'd like to begin this morning by painting a bit of a picture of where we've been so far, as well as pointing us forward to where we need to go in our final time in this series this morning. So in our first week together, Pastor Greg and I uh, busted some common myths, right? So this series is Gospel Mythbusters. So we busted some common myths, first of all, surrounding what the gospel is, namely the myth that the gospel is all about me, right? That's why this offertory was so fitting, such a fitting introduction to our time together, right? Because there's this myth that it's all about me. It's all about me being a good boy or girl. The gospel's moralistic. Or it's all about me feeling good about myself. The gospel's therapeutic. Or, the, or it's really all about me making whatever decision I want because God's just disconnected from my life. It's deistic, right? But as we looked more deeply into Romans chapters 1 through 3, we discovered together that actually the gospel, right, what the Bible has to tell us about the good news concerning the person of Jesus Christ is actually none of those things. In other words, it's not primarily about us and what we need to do, although that tends to be the lens through which we read our Bibles initially. But it's actually primarily, it's centrally about Him, about what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ to save us through His death for us on the cross. And we saw that at the heart of this gospel is a concept known as substitution, right? Substitution, that's to say, Jesus stood in my place. He received my punishment so that I could be fully and finally reconciled to God by grace through faith in what he has done and not in what I do. Amen? And in that alone, in that alone. Last week we took it a step further then by addressing this common myth and busting it. This common myth that the gospel is only useful then for salvation. But once you enter the kingdom, the Christian life is all about striving and effort unrelated to the gospel. You leave the gospel behind and you go into deeper things. And we came to see that that is false as we opened the scriptures. The scriptures simply do not speak that way. The way that all of the apostles speak. In fact, the way the Old Testament points us forward is that the gospel is the source of spiritual growth. It's the pathway of spiritual growth. We walk along the lines of the gospel in our daily life. If we really believe it and understand it, 
our lives will begin to look different. We'll apply it to every single area of life. And we saw this again throughout the scriptures. Now this week, it's related to that, right? Because this is a part of our spiritual growth. But we need to deal with the final myth because we've seen, and, and really these three pillars are, are almost in a sense the pillars of the Christian life, right? You've seen what the gospel is, pillar one. You need clarity regarding that. It's not something we just brush over and assume, right? Because if we assume the gospel, then our children will deny the gospel, right? It's very important for us to not assume the gospel because when churches assume the gospel, the next generation denies it and the following generation walks away from it. And so we, we came to see last week, right, that it does a work in us if we don't assume it. But now we have to talk about what it does through us. Because this gospel does make a difference. See, there's this myth that, yes, of course, Jeremy, you, you, you take the gospel along with you. In, in a personal way, right, in, in a private way. The gospel is your own private, personal experience with Jesus. And the reason for preaching it to yourself is primarily related to the, to the fact that you've been forgiven. So, this myth would say, you preach Romans 8 to yourself primarily so that you would know, look, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But once you know that, right, you keep just getting this, this uh, inoculation, right, to this virus called hell, you know, you you keep getting the vaccination shot, but then your life doesn't really need to look any differently, right? So you take the gospel with you, but the gospel doesn't really make any difference in how I engage with the world around me. I can live uh, pretty much like the rest of the world, maybe a little bit more moral at times, but for the most part, our lives will look the same as the world, and we just keep bringing Romans 8 to bear. But actually, what, what we come to see on the pages of Scripture is that the gospel makes a radical difference in the life of a believer, right? In such a way that it not only transforms me and shapes me, as we'll see examples of in our text today, just like we did last week, because it's unavoidable. It's just the way the scriptures are written, right? But it also sends me out on mission. It puts a, puts a word on my mouth that I have to speak, right? And that, that's what we're going to see in our text. So really what we're looking at is Acts chapter 4, as I prayerfully thought about where should we go together? One of the scriptures that I love to take people as it relates to this idea of the, the difference the gospel makes in the world around us is this chapter, right? Acts chapter 4. Because here you actually get this front row picture of these apostles who walked with Jesus, right? And they saw his death. And they, they, they were witnesses to the resurrection. And they've come to believe this great truth, right? And they've come to believe it. We know they believe it because they've received the Holy Spirit. The job of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout the Scriptures is to point us to the cross of Christ. So clearly they believe in this redemption of Jesus. And the big question then is, does it make any difference? Do their lives look any different from the world around them? Well, let's take a look. We're going to read the, almost the whole chapter. Acts Chapter 4, if you can turn there with me, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31, all right? Now listen, uh, I'm going to read this, and initially it might not make sense because it's so connected to the previous story. So you might be tempted to, well, what's, what's going on in the text, and, and flip back. This is so great. I, I just want to encourage you, we'll get there, 
just set your eyes on the text with me, all right? Uh, this story is so good, so compelling uh, for us that I just want us to allow the Word of God to saturate us this morning. So Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So this is Peter and John. They came upon Peter and John greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested Peter and John and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were with the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is, man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone concerning this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant you Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Okay, to give you some context here, all that we read about in Acts chapter 4 happens immediately following the very first miracle of the apostles, right? So we've seen miracles in the life of Jesus. This is the first time we've seen a miracle in the ministry of the apostles. And a basic summary of that story, a chapter earlier, is that a crippled man asks for money. Peter and John don't have money. What they do have, though, is the name of Jesus. That's far greater than money. And because of that, he's actually offered an entirely new life, right? Yes, physically, but as we'll see in a moment, I think more than that transpires from it. He's healed. He can walk. So Peter heals this man, and then he preaches Jesus. This is important because texts like this are oftentimes misused and misinterpreted to somehow mean that if you have enough faith, right, then, then God always restores health and wealth and prosperity. This is, this is not what the Scripture teaches. Actually, what the Scripture is pointing us forward to is this complete, utter dependence of this man on Jesus to save us. So we'll see that in a minute. But he preaches Jesus, the natural corollary, and immediately we find a group of Jewish religious leaders who are really, I mean, like in the story, they are the only ones who are not too happy about what has just transpired, right? And it's here that we find in our question regarding what difference the gospel makes in our lives four contrasts in Acts chapter 4, if you're taking notes. I'm pretty sure I made that the heading of our, of our section. Four contrasts, right? Four differences, in each case, between how the world responds to the risen Christ and how the gospel, this death and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, actually shapes in us and creates in us a completely different response, okay? So let's get to work. Our first contrast is in verses 1 through 4. Obviously, there's a lot we'll have to gloss over with 31 verses. I do not plan to have you here until 3 o'clock, okay? Um, but here's the first set of contrasts. The world wants a resume. The gospel necessitates reliance. The world wants a resume in your notes. I, I encourage you to write it down. The world wants a resume. The gospel necessitates reliance. So we see that immediately after this healing and proclamation of Jesus... And his saving work on the cross, while they're still teaching and preaching to the people, there is just this whole host of characters in the text that sort of descend upon the apostles. The text literally says, they set upon them, they came upon them, it's like a SWAT team just busting in the doors to break it up. And, and this is a remark, set upon them, right? It's meant to, among other things, describe this like major confrontation, right? So that's what Luke is setting us up for. Luke wants us to understand what happened here. And what's happening here is conflict. So who are these people who are uh, in conflict with Peter and John? Well, Peter and John are most likely standing on the eastern side of the temple's outer courts. And the reason that's important is because what that tells us is that these people who are at odds with them in this moment are actually religious leaders who are in charge of the temple. They're primarily responsible for the oversight of the temple. We see some of the priests that are there in the temple. We see this guy called the captain of the temple. The captain of the temple was a man who was in charge of the temple police. He was actually, he was a member of the priestly family, just like all the other priests, right? But he uh, actually was the number two man, number two man in charge at the temple. So this was an elitist position. This man is an elitist among the Jews. And together, these priests would officiate over the, the offering, the daily offering. 
And the captain of the temple, in particular, needed to keep the peace. That was one of his major roles, right? He politically had a motivation to make sure that the people who came into the temple didn't make wild claims about a Messiah. And you can imagine, on the heels of Jesus, his radar is up, right, to make sure that that stops, because that's been going on for too long, and now Jesus is dead, so he's hoping, hoping or in his mind, Jesus is dead, so he's hoping it's all going to kind of, right? And yet, here we have these men proclaiming Jesus. Then we see the Sadducees, who were one of the key sects of Judaism, and the Sadducees, man, they were so boastful. They claimed that their roots in Judaism went all the way back to the high priest under Solomon, right? So with all these, <laughs> these different characters, you have this, like, my bloodline is so important. My heritage makes me so important, right? And they denied any talk of the resurrection. So all that to say, the priests had this, like, background and resume that they thought gave them the credibility to, to do the work of the temple, right? To deal with the religious aspects of the temple. The captain had this background and resume that he thought gave him the credibility to deal with the political side of the temple, working with the Romans. The Sadducees had the background and resume to deal with the theological aspect of the temple. I'm not trying to oversimplify, but that's what's happening here. And when we hear the name of Jesus proclaimed, all they understand it to be is an affront against their resume that they've worked hard to put together or establish and that they believe to be superior to everyone else. And so they see it as trouble. Especially, as we'll see in a moment, coming from men who have no such resumes, right? So they're looking at these guys and they're saying, these guys are in here proclaiming things authoritatively? They're common men. They're uneducated. They don't come from the same stock that we do. And then they're looking around and seeing thousands of people come to Jesus. And they're they're saying, these people are receiving this name? They're common. They're uneducated, right? In fact, the text tells us that these men, because of this, are greatly annoyed And the fact that the person who rose, that these men were proclaiming, Jesus, they they said was a prophet like Moses. In other words, he's the promised Messiah that never showed his face in the Pentateuch, right? But that the Old Testament pointed us toward. That makes them even more nervous because this authority figure being proclaimed in the temple from their perspective takes away their power, takes away the control that they had, undercuts their right that they believe they have because of their resume. So that's why they're pulling the plug on this. They're saying, hold on, you're trying to take from me something that's mine by right, something that I've worked hard to put together. And who are you to do that? So they arrest Peter and John, and Peter and John aren't really punished as much as they're held temporarily until they can get a hearing together. So that's the response of the religious leaders. They, and, and yet, take a look at how it responds to, how, how it uh, contrasts in verse 4 to the response of the people. So, Religious leaders, all about the resume. What about the people? Well, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who believed on that day, I think that's what the text is saying, actually, number to about 5,000. So I think thousands of people hear the word of God and believe Peter and John's proclamation and teaching, and they believe. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what's the difference, right? Why do these thousands of people believe, right? And yet their own religious leaders hear the exact same proclamation and teaching, and not only do they not believe it, but they want to seek to end it entirely, right? They don't, they don't want it proclaimed any longer, right? Why is that? Well, because the world wants a resume. But the gospel demands, it demands that we come to grips with our desperate need for a Savior, right? See, the response of the people here, we see the brokenness. It's obviously... 
Because in hearing this preaching and being made to feel uncomfortable in their sin and knowing themselves well, right, and recognizing that they had this problem of being separated from God, being cut to the heart, knowing that only Jesus could deal with that on their behalf and recognizing their own inability to follow this law, this system as they're standing in the temple and they know they have to come back daily because they know their own failures, they know their own sins. They throw themselves on the mercy of God. Their faith and repentance marks the moment, friends, when they stop trying to build their own resume, right? That they've been trying so desperately to put together so that God would somehow be impressed by them. Establishing their own righteousness and instead rely on the righteousness that Jesus offers them through what he has already done. And isn't this contrast so true in the world around us? Nearly every other formal world religion asks for a resume. You know that? Whether Eastern religi- religions that believe in many gods like Hinduism, or non-theistic religions that claim that you can be your own god, just be a god like Buddhism, or Middle Eastern religions that call you to a set of standards for obedience, obedience like Islam, each one says that in order to progress, in order to find peace, in order to meet God or become God, you have to do enough. Right? And yet only at the cross of Christ... Do we find the reality that I honestly, I think everyone in this room knows inherently. We know it about ourselves because we know ourselves too well, right? Which is that we can't do it. We can't do enough. Only in Christianity do we find men not reaching up to God in order to seek him and serve him, but God reaching down to sinful man to rescue them so that they can know him and love him so that their desires change to want to serve him, right? We see that so clearly in the text. So the world wants a resume. It's it's a Christian life. It's a gospel-shaped life, just like the rest of the world, right? No. The two do not mesh. That's why we're seeing conflict, right? Uh, The gospel necessitates. It demands reliance. Reliance on the completed work of Jesus. Secondly, we see in your notes, the world craves control. The world craves, right, power, control. The gospel brings conviction. The gospel brings conviction. Now, I, I, I don't mean here conviction of sin, although we've just seen the gospel does that, right? It drives us to realize we need Jesus so much. What I'm talking about here with conviction is belief, truth, right? Truth in Jesus being who he says he is. So starting in verse 5, we see that the Jewish leaders gather together in Jerusalem to hear Peter and John and consider what their official response will be. So, What this is referring to is actually all or most of the 71-member tribunal that really, during this time, served as the Jewish Supreme Court. So if we think of, like, the priests and the temple captain as being, like, elite religious positions, like religious elitists, these guys are, like, the elitist of the elite all gathering together, right? So, So if you can imagine with me, this supreme, here's how it would have gone down. The supreme court of sorts seated in a semicircle around Peter and John. So that they can all see Peter and John, they can all question them, and that they can all see one another, right? So that's how they would have met. And so they seated in this semicircle, looking at Peter and John. They asked them in verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? Here's what they're saying. They, the leadership of the temple, did not give these men the authority to act in the way that they did, okay? 
So they want to know where they claim to have the authority not only to heal someone, but to, to, to then declare a messianic figure in the midst of the temple, right? What gives them that right? The leadership doesn't want to come to grips, right, with what happened to the, to the guy, and that's just going to be so obvious in a minute. But they know this for sure. They didn't give Peter and John this authority, but Peter and John have this authority, right? Obviously, because this all went down. And yet, in their view, this is totally weird because, hey, this authority is ours to have and to give and to withhold, but evidently not. So Peter's response to them is both winsome and yet bold, right? It's humble and bold, right? Verses 8 and 9. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, so we see from the very beginning where his power comes from, right, where his claim to power comes from the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Okay, this is interesting. Okay, so Peter's not pulling any punches here. First, he's not shying away from pointing out the obvious irony in the room. And it's really amusing because really Peter's sort of asking the question, uh, I mean, like, what are we doing here, right? Like, what, what's happening? He says, look, this man was crippled, and now he's the opposite of that. Isn't that a good thing, right? He's been made completely well. That's what the text says. And he describes it as a good deed, which was a term that this tribunal would have known well, right? An act of beneficial service to the community that was almost always rewarded or well-received in the ancient world when something like this would take place, right? But instead of this act being well-received, instead of being excited for this man, you guys, who's 40 years old and has never walked before, they're holding a hearing as though someone just did something wrong, right? I mean, can you imagine? Every time I'm in Acts 4, I try to imagine what's going through the mind of this guy who was healed. Walking around at first, obviously rejoicing, tears in his eyes. Walking. And now the guys who healed him are being put on trial for it? Are you kidding me? I mean, you've got to wonder if this guy's not like, okay, but I don't have to go back to being crippled, right? Like, I can... Keep walking, all right, maybe just back away for a while. But second, Peter doesn't shy away from telling them exactly how this man received his wellness, right? He proclaims the truth about this. And even what it points to, which is the truth of the gospel. See, this word for healed is actually a different form of the same word used throughout the New Testament that means to be saved, right? And just to nerd out on the grammar a little bit, it's actually a perfect passive verb. And all that means is this man had nothing to do with it. It was completely out of his control, completely. It wasn't because of his resume. It wasn't because he did anything right. right? It points to Jesus as being the one who did the saving. He was completely reliant on Jesus to do everything. Sheer grace of God. Third, Peter doesn't shy away from telling them in no uncertain terms that Jesus is, yeah, that guy, remember that guy? He's actually the one that you crucified and that God vindicated by raising from the dead. And it's here that we begin to see the real difference between the gospel and the world. It's here that we begin to see how the gospel actually turns this whole thing on its head. Because this whole thing started with the leaders thinking they were in control 
putting John and Peter on trial, and now Peter makes it clear. Actually, you're the ones on trial and guilty in God's court. You know, Peter might be guilty of preaching Jesus, but he's guilty for good and even divine reasons. He's enabled by the power of the Spirit to do this, right? But the leaders are guilty before God. And at the end of the day, Peter makes it clear, look, we're all guilty. All of us are guilty. Everyone in this room is guilty of offense before God, and yet Jesus saves. This Jesus is the, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who's become the cornerstone, right? So there's rebellion, there's sin, yet verse 12, and there's salvation in no one else. For no, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's grace that is to be received and believed in. So the religious leaders craved control. They wanted power and authority that wasn't ultimately theirs to have or give or withhold. And isn't that true in surrounding cultures? Right? Isn't that true sometimes even from within the, the church? It's so easy to think that my giftings flow out of me. It's so easy to think that it, it was my resume that gives me the power for mi- ministry in some capacity. It's so easy for people in the world around us to crave control. I can think of numerous examples of that in the culture right now, but the gospel gives conviction, a belief, an underlying belief, not in our own power and authority, but in the power and authority of the name of Jesus Christ. Third contrast we see in the text, the world demands a private, personal faith, and yet the gospel drives us into a public mission and proclamation. The world demands a private, personal faith. The gospel drives us into a public mission and proclamation. Now now we come to see the religious leaders have a big problem on their hands. Man, this is a sticky situation for these guys. They're between a rock and a hard place. They have to figure out what to do with this healed guy. Standing before them, no magic has been used, no incantations have been chanted, right? The apostles are claiming this was the work of the Father through Jesus. This healed man was well known in the community. There's no hiding it. Everyone knew him as a cripple, and now he's healed, and he's standing beside the apostles like exhibit A in a court of law, right? And there's just nothing the leaders can say. That's what they say. (laughs) They can't deny it. What the apostles did here is just obvious, why it happened is, is troubling us. And, and the person who is now, who, who did it is now being proclaimed to the people, okay? And the leaders know that they can't both keep their power and control. You can't just act, continue to act like the rest of the world. Keep your power and control that they've earned by way of their resume and their bloodlines and all of these things, while at the same time embracing the claim about Jesus, right? It would cause you to yield those things, knowing that he's the one that's ultimately in control. And yet they will not do that. So what do they do? Well, they tell Peter and John, this is pretty incredible, they tell them to leave. They privately deliberate, and they acknowledge to one another that their dilemma is hard because they want Peter and John to stop preaching Jesus. And yet, on the other hand, they have to figure out what to do with what they call in verse 16, if you look there, a notable sign. They say, for that a notable sign has been performed to them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and even we can't deny it. And we can't deny what's happened, right? This term, notable sign, can also be translated outstanding miracle. Notable miracle. And the basic sense of it is it's a miracle that's obvious or capable of being seen by everyone, right? And all of this evidence suggests that this is the activity of God the Father, 
And they themselves can't deny it. We, we really see the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders. It doesn't matter what evidence is presented. It doesn't matter how clear or compelling or obvious it is. Nothing will cause them to relinquish their power and embrace Jesus. So instead, they demand not that the apostles stop themselves from believing that this happened. Yeah, it's just incredible. Just that they stop telling the people that. So <laughs> they say. Keep it private. It's actually pretty unreal because what Luke tells us here is that the religious leaders of Israel are actively attempting to stop their own people from finding their own Messiah. They don't say that the Father wasn't at work in the name of Jesus. They never say that. They don't deny the power that's evident in these common un uneducated men. In fact, they grant both points. They don't deny the obvious miracle that occurred. They don't even contest the claim. It's sort of a non-denial denial. They just say, stop telling other people about it, okay? We all know maybe that's what happened, but shh. It can be your personal faith, but you've got to stop proclaiming. It's got to stop with you. This is also, once again, the world we live in. In our time, it's not considered taboo to have a personal or private commitment to Jesus Christ so long as it's personal and private and stays that way. Thank you very much. There's a current attempt to, to sort of craft and put together a public square, right, a public sphere of the world that is completely absent from religious thought and faith commitments. And oftentimes, listen, it doesn't matter how strong the arguments are, right? The arguments aren't even talked about. Rather, there's this pressure that's placed upon the culture to not engage in religious discussion, right, to keep it private. Now, obviously, just from a philosophical point of view, it's impossible. It's just impossible. So I, I included this quote in your notes. Michael Perry, he's, he's the chair of the Constitutional Law Department at Wake Forest and Emory University. He says this. He says, to say religious reasoning must be kept out of the public square because it's faith-based and controversial is itself a faith-based statement, which is incredibly controversial and therefore on its own terms ought to be thrown out. What he's saying is, look, everyone, every single person in this world makes faith statements, makes faith commitments that they carry into the public square, whether it's based on Judeo-Christian worldviews from Scripture or a modern Enlightenment worldview. Everyone has them. So what the world is asking for from us is impossible. And even by asking for it, they're demonstrating their refusal to do it themselves. Nevertheless, here's what the gospel does in us. Regardless of what's, what pressure is put upon us, the gospel moves us to never keep it private. It drives us into public mission. Look at Peter's response. And I just want to back up to verse 18 so that we really feel the weight of this. So they called them together and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The apostles knew well what the ramifications of this would be. I mean, these religious leaders just had Jesus crucified. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, to God you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, what does Peter and John, what do they not say? They don't say, eh, we're supposed to speak of what we're, you know. I mean, can you guys cut us some slack? Because as Christians, we're supposed to do this, right? They don't say, a couple chapters ago, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, so if I'm going to be a good Christian, 
This is what I have to do. It's my duty, right? They don't, they don't say that. What do, what do they say? He says, we cannot but speak. We can't do anything else. The gospel gives us an understanding of our desperate need for a Savior, like we talked about two weeks ago. And the death and resurrection of Jesus has given us a conviction that he's the only means of salvation, and therefore we can do nothing else. You judge whether or not you think we should listen to you or to God, but there's nothing else our hearts will allow than to speak, to be on mission. Friends, I don't, I don't ask this as someone who's figured this out. I don't ask this as someone who has arrived on the journey of evangelism. Evangelism freaks me out. Okay? It does. I want to go plant a church in Minneapolis, and I am freaked out of my mind. I'm scared. But the Lord is faithful, right? And we know that we can trust in him. And so I ask, I ask this of me, I ask this of all of us, is our response to the love of God on the cross and the power of resurrection, Peter and John's response, is this what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts and lives? Are we even now intentionally thinking about, because we can do nothing else but think about how to reach a lost world with the gospel of Jesus, how to speak winsomely and effectively, how to proclaim the gospel of Jesus again and again for the salvation of people and for our own sanctification and growth. The world demands a private, personal faith, but the gospel drives us into a public mission and proclamation. And finally, and very briefly, we see the world touts self-importance. The gospel calls for self-forgetfulness and gospel remembrance. So the apostles are released because <laughs> religious leaders know there's nothing they can do about this. All right? And after being released, we see where the apostles not only draw their strength, but they see it as their own source of growth, the very thing that enables them to be on mission, which is the gospel of Christ. Having left this trial, they've just left a world that really touted self-importance, that declared self-importance. My resume make me, makes me important. My role makes me important. My, my heritage makes me important. I'm the center of my world, but the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus calls them not to think of themselves as important, but to forget themselves and remember the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, I mean, this is spiritual warfare because this is what Satan wants to muddy things. There are two major factors here. Number one is that because of sin, our hearts will never naturally gravitate back to the gospel. But number two, because of that, the world that we live in, I mean, it's all about helping yourself and being impressed with ourself and thinking better about ourselves with self-help literature and self-improvement television. It's all around us because it's our default mode. It's everywhere. And the last thing we think we need is the repetition of the gospel in our life, and yet this is the very thing, friends, that we're called to. This is the very thing that bolsters us as believers to really move out on mission because we're so passionate for what Jesus has done. And that's my prayer for us. And, and it brings us to our central theme, and that's this. If we truly believe in the reality of the gospel, our lives will be transformed by grace. It's really the central theme for the whole series, right? If we truly believe in the reality of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then our lives will be transformed by grace. The power of God, the Holy Spirit, will continue to point us to the gospel, both for salvation, we see people saved in the text, as well as for our sanctification, our growth as Christians, as we see evidenced in the lives of the apostles. And we can have the best laid plans that mankind can offer to see this through, but in the end, it only happens through the power of God. So we have to look to him right now, right? It comes from him. So let me close us in prayer as the band comes up to lead us in a, a final song together. Father, 
we are reliant on you entirely. And what we pray, Lord, is that you make us so passionate about what you've done for us that it would just change everything. And so, Lord, would you do that? Would you reveal yourself to us in such ways, repeatedly, that we can do nothing but speak you? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.